All right, so I want to start this morning with a little crowd participation. Are you guys ready? Yeah, okay. That's, that's uh, failure number one. Okay, so let's, we're, I'm just trying to get you warmed up and ready. It's a holiday weekend. You're tired. You've had a, you know, you had a long weekend. You've had a lot of fun. And you're here at church on Sunday, which means you're the best Christians on the planet. So are you, re- are you ready for a little crowd participation? Okay. It's a little better. Thank you very much. You're way better than the 8 o'clock crowd. Don't tell them that, though. All right, I want you to finish this statement right here. The grass is always greener. No, you're wrong. It's over the septic tank. You should know that. No, of course, you're right. The grass is always greener on the other side. We grew up hearing this, didn't we? Our, a lot of us have our entire lives. The grass is always greener on the other side, or the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Now, I don't know what your neighborhood is like. I'm, this really has nothing to do with anything. I'm just confessing that this is literally true in my neighborhood. As I was starting uh, to prepare this series, I thought, I live this out every single day because practically every neighbor I have, uh, on front or back, they have all had their lawns professionally done, seeded, you know, fertilized, all that. They're green, they're lush, they're thick, they're wonderful. I ain't doing that. That costs too much money. So I'm that guy in that neighborhood. You probably have some people like that in your neighborhood, and some of you talk very poorly about them. But that would be me in our neighborhood. But I appreciate so much what my neighbors have done because I can sit on my back deck, and if I'll just look over my yard, it's really peaceful. It's, it looks amazing. So I just ignore my yard. Now, I don't leave it hanging where it looks awful. Let me teach you a little trick my grandparents taught me. They grew up in the country. Here's, here's how you do this. If you're one of those people in a neighborhood where you have 50% or more weeds, you can't tell the weeds from the grass. That's kind of what my yard, I think, is. Here, here's the trick. If you cut it low, it won't show. That's your motto, okay? You get it low enough, nobody can tell. Is that a weed or grass? I don't know. I don't know. You just let it go, all right? So anyway, we're not talking during this series about yard tensions. You all can figure that out on your own. We're talking about this tension right here, the what-if tension, the what-if tension. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. This is not the good kind of what-if that we all ask ourselves at different points. I just want to make this clear. This is not the what-if that you've thought at times. What if I could do something for them? What if I could get myself in a position to really be able to help them? What if I could end that injustice? Or what if we could address that problem? What if we could find a solution to that issue in our community? What if we could do something for somebody else? Those are all good what-ifs. This isn't even the what-if of, you know, what if we could keep making progress? And what if we could? What if we could? What if we could? It's good stuff. It's driven by good things. It's to help others. No, those are all good things. That's fine. The what-if tension I'm talking about is one that we're all familiar with. It's the tension that shows up when you realize, wait a minute, I'm happy, I'm grateful, I'm content, and then you turn the corner and go down the aisle in Target, or you drive across the parking lot at the car dealership, or you're driving through that neighborhood and suddenly there's a for sale sign right there, or somebody drives up in the newer truck or the newer boat or the newer whatever. It's that thing we've all had this experience, haven't we, where all of a sudden we're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I see that, and I'm starting to wonder, what if I bought that? What if I owned that? What if I went there? What if I traveled there? What if I lived there? What if, what if, what if? That's the kind of tension I'm going to talk about, because this kind of what if question creates a lot of discontentment in all of us, and it's so strange, it's so odd, but we've all had the experience of we were perfectly content one moment, and in the blink of an eye, we see something, and suddenly we're not so content anymore, and we are asking ourselves a question we weren't asking ourselves before. Well, what if I was able to trade this for this, upgrade, you know, from this to this? All of us know what that feels like. Now, 
If you're not sure where your what-if tension is, I'll help you out, okay? Here's how you can know where that tension is showing up in your life. Just finish this sentence. As soon as I get blank, I'll have what I want. We've all thought this. And depending on the stage or season of life, this changes for all of us, doesn't it? If you're a, a middle schooler or a high schooler, a college student, you can remember back just, you know, not too many years ago when you were in middle school, it starts with, as soon as I get a phone, and then it is, as soon as my parents will let me have a Snapchat account, an Instagram account, and then it's as soon as I, you know, turn 16, I get a car and I can start driving, we all remember that, then it's as soon as I can get a date, and then it's as soon as I can graduate, and then it's as soon as I can get a job, and, but once you get the job, then it's as soon as I can get a, a better job and a better job, and now I want this job instead, and there's all that that goes on, and some of us are still living in that world. Uh, for some of us, the tension is, as soon as I get married, and that's a big one for some of you, for others of you, Unfortunately, I'm really not making light of this, but you're thinking, if I were honest, I would say as soon as I get unmarried, I'll have what I want because things are awful right now, or as soon as I get remarried, then I'm going to have what I want. For some of you in a stage where it's as soon as I have kids, or as soon as my kids get out of this stage and into this stage, or as soon as my kids just get out of my house entirely, they've come back, I want them out again, you know, you, some of you are living in that world. I, I have noticed for... Um, uh, some of you, you're at a stage of life, you're far enough along, that it seems like once the kids get out of the house and you kind of have your world back and your life back, then you actually start wanting things for your kids instead of for you. So, so your blank may be as soon as my kids are able to buy a house or as soon as my kids are able to graduate or as soon as all my kids are, you know, whatever. Or then it's the grandkids and you want certain things for them. And there are a thousand other smaller things we could put in this blank. We all know what this feels like. We all have experienced this. Now, there are a couple problems with this, and this is not new information for you. But one of the problems with this is if you live your entire life this way, you eventually discover the law of diminishing return. And the law of diminishing return just says the more you get, the more incremental the happiness you experience from that thing you get. Now you, you've experienced this. You got this, and you were really happy, but then you got this, and the next time you got that, you weren't quite as happy as the first time, and then it just, over time, the more you get, the less happy you become by the next thing that you achieve, even though you think it's going to help you to experience the happiness that you used to have. In a simple way, you see this whenever you buy something and then begin to upgrade it. You know, that first phone, that first car, that first whatever, it's just so much happiness, and after a little while you upgrade, that upgrade doesn't make you quite happy, and then the next one makes you less, and the next one makes you less. Happiness begins to grow incrementally in your life. While at the same time you're having less and less happiness, achieving more and more or acquiring more and more, there, you're, you know, there's always something more you're still looking for. So you're having less and less happiness, but your desire for more keeps going, keeps growing, keeps getting bigger, keeps expanding. There's always something more you're looking for. And that is a recipe for discontentment. That's a recipe for dissatisfaction. That is a recipe for unhappiness. For unhappiness. Now, what is it that creates that kind of disconnect for all of us? What is it that creates that level of discontent in all of us where no matter what we have, no matter if we achieve the things that we didn't have, but we always thought, once I have that, I'll be happy, and then we get there, and then there's something else. What is it that creates that kind of discontentment in us where we're never fully and finally satisfied? Again, this is not new information because we all live this every single day. The thing that creates that kind of discontentment in us is simply comparison. Comparison. 
We are always, consciously or subconsciously, but we are always looking to the left or the right, comparing where we are with other people. And haven't you noticed that while there are always people behind us that make us feel better about ourselves, there are also always people in front of us that leave us having more that we're looking for. I'll explain it this way, and this is a silly way to illustrate it, but it'll make the point. If I was sitting down with you and I looked at you and said, okay, here's what I want you to do. On a scale of 1 to 10, I want you to rank for me where you feel like the quality of your life is right now. Just where everything is in your life, where would you rank it on a scale of 1 to 10? 10 being extraordinary. Let me tell you the mental exercise you would quickly do. You wouldn't even think about this. It would just be intuitive because this is just how we all act. You would instinctively take where you are now and compare it to something. You would compare it to where somebody else is that you admire. You would compare it to where somebody else was at, you know, at the same stage of life you're at now. You would compare it to the expectations somebody has on you of where you ought to be. Or maybe you would compare it to your own expectations of where you think you ought to be at this point. But my point is, the only way you would come up with a number is by comparing your situation to something else. The same is true if we drilled down into different areas. If I said, hey, let's talk about where you are financially right now, you would compare it to something, and that's how you would arrive at a number. If I said, hey, let's talk about you know, where you are in terms of family, you'd compare it to something. Hey, let's talk about where you are in terms of your physical health and your fitness and your looks. Okay, you would compare it to something. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. The number you give me would change based on what you decided to compare yourself to. Again, silly example, but if I said, all right, give me a number on scale 1 to 10 of where you feel like you are in terms of your physical health and your fitness and how you look. Here's what you would do. You would give me a number on that scale, and it would be entirely determined by where you went on vacation this year. You know what I'm talking about. For those of you who've been on vacation, some of you went to those beaches where everybody was fit and in shape, and you thought, oh, this is not my place. And you would compare yourself to all the people you saw and think, mm, I'm, okay, I'm a four. Like, they were, no, I'm a four. Others of you went to beaches this summer, or will go to beaches, where, let's just say there are a lot more donuts than gyms around that place. So you might look at yourself and come back and go, oh, no, no, I'm an eight. I'm an eight. Well, how do you know you're an eight? And you'd be like, you should have seen those people out there at that beach. I'm an eight, you know. It all depends. You know we do this, right? We all do it. The number you give would be determined by what you're comparing yourself to, which means, which means you are evaluating the quality of your life and you are defining and determining your satisfaction and contentment in life by where other people are and it is a moving target because it changes based on who's to your left or to your right. So what do you do with that? Because that's human nature, okay? My point today is not to get up here and say, that is bad, stop it. Just be content and grateful, stop it. That, that doesn't help anybody. We live in a world where we are constantly tempted, baited, enticed, encouraged, whatever word you want to use, to peer over the fence and to look at the grass on the other side. So how do you deal with discontentment that's driven by comparison when we live in a world that is constantly causing us to compare. And part of the thing that makes it so difficult is because we are now more aware than we've ever been before of what else is going on in everyone else's world, aren't we? Because of social media, 
because of media in general, because of interactions we're able to have that, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago they didn't have. Now we see everybody's, we don't see everybody's life, we see everybody's highlight reel, don't we? And so we're comparing our real life to somebody else's highlight reel so we never feel content. We're always discontent. We're always wanting a little bit more. We're always peering over the fence to the left or to the right. And the grass always looks a little bit greener. So what do you do with that? Well, for the next few weeks, as we go throughout this month, we're going to address that. And we're going to dig into, okay, this is a part of life. You can't change it. But is there a way to navigate through it? Is there a way to live in a world that is built on comparison and not compare? Is there a way to live in a world that is literally designed to make you discontent, but to live at peace? Is there a way to live with contentment that is independent of your circumstances? Um, let me give you a definition of contentment. This is just my definition. So it, I'm not saying it's right or it's good. It's just mine, okay? But here's my definition of contentment as we go throughout this series. I may wish my circumstances would change, but I'm at peace just the same. That's what contentment looks like. I may wish my circumstances would change. This isn't me sitting back going, well, it is what it is. I'm never going to change anything, and I'm never going to grow, and I'm never going to try to make progress, and I'm, I'm not even going to worry about those goals, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not. Nope. I may wish things would change, but I'm at peace just the same, even if they don't, or until they do. I'm not driven by dissatisfaction and discontentment in an unhealthy way. I'm going to be at peace. It is possible to live that way. Part of the reason I know it's possible is because in the first century, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. And these Christians in Philippi, they were new to following Jesus. Paul had been doing it for a long time, and Paul notices some of the things that they haven't yet learned and figured out. And one of the things revolves around this what-if tension that they felt. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter, I don't even think they ask him for advice. He just decided, you got friends like this who are like, nope, I'm going to give you some advice on that because that's a problem. You don't even know it's a problem. I'm going to point it out. That was kind of how Paul approached this. So he begins to write about this and give them some advice. And I find it interesting because human nature has never changed. Our circumstances have changed. What makes us discontent has changed. But throughout history, you read any ancient history you want, human beings have always unconsciously found themselves looking to the left or to, to the right to compare. We've always found ourselves battling discontentment. So Paul says, hey, there is a way to address that. Now, before I read you what he said, I just want to give you some context because it will add a lot of weight to Paul's words. When Paul wrote what we're about to read about contentment, he did it from a Roman prison cell, which is about the worst place you could be in the first century. Limited food, limited water, you know, hot in the summer, cold in the winter. It was about as miserable and squalid a condition as you could live in. Paul could have looked out his window. Paul could have looked around and he could have, you know, left, right, didn't matter. Every fence on every side he peered over. It looked better than where he was. The grass was greener on all sides of him. And yet in spite of that, Paul is writing from that situation and talking about contentment, and here's what he says. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. 
So they had sent him some type of gift or something in order to encourage him. And this is Paul's way of saying, hey, I've been in this cell for a while. I didn't hear from you, but I knew you were concerned about me. You just couldn't figure out a way to get your gift here, to get the message here. You finally got it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I'm encouraged by it. But, and then Paul makes what seems like such an odd statement when you know his circumstances. He says, in spite of that, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Paul says, okay, I want you to know I'm so appreciative of what you sent, but I'm not appreciative because I'm in need. To which we would go, well, yes, you are. You're in a Roman prison cell. You can't get any more in need than that. But Paul didn't view himself as being in need, and the reason he didn't is because he had figured out how not to play the what-if game. He had figured out how to live in the present without looking to the left or the right, just to stay focused straight ahead. Where wherever he was, he was content. Not that he didn't want his circumstances to change, but he was at peace just the same. So he writes to them, and he knows this is going to get their attention because they assume I'm in desperate need, and they assume I'm looking for help. So he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, I love Paul's honesty here. I find it really encouraging because he says, contentment, which is independent of your circumstances, is something that you learn, something that you learn. That's encouraging. That means you're not born with it. There aren't people who are born content and people who are born not content. And Well, you got it and you didn't. No, no, no. Paul says anybody can learn this. Anybody can. So if you struggle with discontentment, Paul says, I, I don't even need to know your circumstances because it's independent of circumstances, but you can learn how to be content right where you are in your current situation. But learned also implies that it takes time. Learned also implies it's going to require a lot of effort. Learned also implies you're going to have to be intentional about this. You're going to have to want to learn this. And until you want to learn this, it's not going to matter. He continues. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Some of you are thinking that I don't get it and that I don't relate to you. Paul says, no, I've been on both sides of the fence. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And remember, if you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is just some fluff, fairy tale religious talk. No, no, no. Paul's sitting in a Roman prison cell as he writes this. He goes, his point is this. He's going, I know whether you have a lot or a little, we all need to learn contentment. Doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. You got to learn what it looks like to be content. Now, why would he say that? If you have plenty, you're going to be content, right? No. And all of us in here know that from experience. Paul understood, because he had been at this point in his life, Paul understood that you can have plenty, and it'll actually drive more discontent in you. That having more doesn't satisfy you. It creates more dissatisfaction. And the reason that is true is because when you have more, when you have plenty, then you have margin with your time and you have margin with your money. That is true for all of us. All of us have margin with our time. There are, there's none of us who have to work seven days a week, 365 days a year, just to put food on the table. We all work jobs where they give us some time off. The reason we're meeting on Sunday at 9.30 instead of Sunday at 5 a.m. to worship is because most of us don't have to work on Sundays or else we'd have to all get up and meet before work. So all of us have some financial time, or excuse me, some margin with our time. That's not a bad thing. But Paul's point is, when you have plenty and when you have time margin, 
It gives you the time to sit around and to think about what you don't have that you'd like to have. It gives you the time to look around to the left and to the right and to see what it is you wish you had more of. Same thing's true with financial margin. All of us have financial margins. We've got a little bit extra financially. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But Paul says you just need to know when you have plenty, when you have extra financially. Instead of it satisfying you, what it actually does is you realize, wait a minute, I got a little extra money here. What could I do with that? And there's always more you're looking for. As a matter of fact, the more you have, the stronger the pull is to get even more. Because the more you have, it's like this. The more you have, the higher it rises you, and the more you can see you don't have. And so there's a pull to try to get that, and then to get that, and then to do that, and then to experience that. Because we're always trying to figure out, what can I do with my more? But it creates dissatisfaction and discontent in all of us. Now, the other side of the fence, Paul says, it's not any better. It just looks different. But absolutely, you deal with discontentment when you're in need, too. If you're trying to put food on the table every single day, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, your discontentment looks different, but you know this if you've ever been there. There is a frustration you deal with because why am I in this circumstance and other people aren't, and, you know, I didn't get a break and they got a break. There's jealousy and envy at times you have to deal with. There's anger at times that you have to deal with because you don't have what you wished you have and you can't provide what you wish you could provide for others or for yourself. So there's something in all of us, doesn't matter what side of the fence we're on, discontentment is a real deal. This is Paul's point. He's going, I don't care which side you're on, you need to learn something. And then he explains to us what we need to learn. He says, I have learned, and this is what you should learn, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now here's what I find interesting. Paul says... There is a secret to contentment, which just means this. Learning to be content is not intuitive. Learning to be content is not obvious. The path to contentment is not well marked. You have to be looking for it. And the only people who look for the path to contentment are the ones who finally discover the danger of what discontentment brings to their life. The only people who look for the secret of contentment are the people who realize discontentment is damaging them and the people around them they care about the most. Most of us never look for the secret of contentment. Most of us aren't on a search for the path to contentment because we don't really think our discontentment is that harmful. But Paul would argue it is. It is. And there is a secret to contentment that if you will look for it, if you will explore, if you will investigate, you will find. And then you will discover how I may want my circumstances to change, but I can be at peace just the same. But it won't be easy. Which is, which is why Paul writes this next. To these Christians in Philippi, he's going, okay, you, you haven't figured out how to deal with this what-if tension. You've got to learn the secret of contentment like I did, but, but you're going to need some help. So he writes this. He says, I can do all this. Well, what's all this? Learning the secret of contentment and living it out. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, we have taken this verse and used it as inspiration to win ball games and championships and, and achieve goals, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's fine. 
But that wasn't the point of why Paul wrote this. That's not what he was referring to. This wasn't about winning championships. This was about inspiring us to learn the secret of contentment. This was about ins inspiring us to do the hard work where we can be at peace no matter what our circumstances may bring. And Paul said, you're not going to be able to do that alone. You're going to need your heavenly Father's strength and help to navigate through all the discontentment and all the dissatisfaction and all the comparison that you battle with every single day. But it's possible to defeat it, and it's possible to learn how to be content. Now, practically, here's what this means. It means for those of you who are in a situation right now that is requiring extreme endurance and perseverance, you're in one of those situations where every day it taxes you as much as it can tax you, and you get to the end of the day and you're like, I don't know how much longer I can go. I don't know how much longer I can take it. I don't know how much longer I can keep on keeping on here. Paul would look at you and say, you may wish for your circumstances to change. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can be content in the middle of this enduring season. You can be at peace in the middle of this enduring season because of the one who will give you strength. Some of you are in a season right now where you're raising your kids and it is a battle and it is difficult and it's just, it's hard. And you keep looking over the fence at the kids next door and they are so compliant. They're just, they do whatever they're asked to do and they don't ever seem to cause any problems. Meanwhile, you have the two most strong-willed kids in the world in your home. And there's a battle every day for who's going to be the boss and you feel like you win about 28% of the time. And you're just like, oh my gosh, if they could just grow out of this, if we could just get out of this season, or some of you are the point, oh my gosh, they got to get out of the house. They've just got, I'm never going to win this battle. Paul would look at you and he would say, no, 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 okay, you, you want your circumstances to change, that's fine. But you can be at peace, even in the middle of these challenging circumstances. You don't have to wish away this season of your life for another one and hope you'll find peace there. For some of you, this is what it looks like with your job, isn't it? You're in a job where you're just, you're miserable. It's meaningless work. It feels that way to you. You show up every single day, you got a terrible boss. It's so difficult to work with. You work with coworkers in a team, they don't support you. You dread it every day. It makes you sick to your stomach when you think about having to go to work on Monday morning. There is no support. To make matters worse, they never give you a raise. And then they charge you to park at your own workplace. That's just for you Murray State employees. I'm just joking. And you're going, oh, my gosh. Go Racers. We love Murray State. Anyway, you're going, you're going, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. I just wish I could get a different job. I just wish I could get a different job. And Paul would look at you and say, okay, go, go look for a different job. But listen, listen. You can be at peace right in the middle of this season. When you're going to work in a job you don't love, you, you don't have to wait until you get the job to find peace. Now, you, you can find peace and contentment right now through him who gives you strength. For some of you, this is just an everyday battle because you wake up every single morning and you look in the mirror and that familiar voice starts in on you again, telling you you can't do it, you're not capable, you're not worth it, you're not good enough, they shouldn't stay with you, they shouldn't love you. They shouldn't believe in you. And you have battled and battled and battled this to the point you're just ready to give up. And Paul would look at you and he would say, no, 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 no. None of that's true. None of that's true. 
And there's a way to quiet those voices. There's a way to silence that criticism. But as you learn how to do that, you can be at peace in the middle of that. And you can find value and worth in spite of those voices through him who gives you strength. Paul's whole point in writing this was to inspire us not to wait till the next season, the next chapter, to find contentment, but to find it today, whatever our circumstances. And I may wish my circumstances could change, but I'm at peace just the same. Paul's point is that can be true for you. But in order to get there, you have to learn the secret of contentment. You have to go find the path that's not so obvious, that's not so clear, and that most people never, ever, ever look for. You have to discover it. You have to have somebody share it with you. But however you get there, you've got to find it. Which brings up the question, what is it? To which I will answer, I'll tell you next week. And I'm not doing that to try to get you to come back next week because that's not going to make you come back if you're not planning to. And it's not going to make you tune in if you don't want to, although I hope you tune in if you're not here. Here's why I'm not going to tell you what it is today. Because you won't care. You're just like me. You won't care and I won't care about what the secret of contentment is until we reach a point where we decide our discontentment is a problem that needs to be solved. And until we reach the point of believing our discontentment needs to be addressed, then the secret of contentment is really irrelevant. It's kind of like when you were a kid and your dad tried to teach you how to change a tire on the car. You didn't care to learn how to change a tire on the car. You didn't care to know anything about how to change a tire on a car until you were on the side of the road at midnight with a flat tire. And you had to call and wake your dad up. And he said, I showed you how to do it, and you had to admit I wasn't paying attention. That's when you wished you would have paid attention. you gotta, you got to feel the pain before you want a solution. So we're going to talk about it next week. But before we get there, what I want to do is give you some questions that you can ask yourself that I hope will unearth a little bit of the discontentment that's inside of you and me that we're not even aware of that hopefully will help you identify how it's creating some damage and some pain, and you didn't even know it was playing a part. Just some questions that hopefully will help us be more self-aware of how dissatisfaction and discontentment and comparison are wreaking havoc in our lives and in our relationships every single day. So, let me give you these. You do with them what you want. I would suggest you be as honest with yourself as you could possibly be about these. You spend some time reflecting on them. You don't have to tell anybody else. If you go, you know, leave here and your spouse or significant other ask you, what'd you think? Just plead the fifth. I don't know how you deal with that. Just, you know, you don't have to answer. Just change the subject, whatever you have to do, but at least be honest with yourself and admit to yourself what's going on. So here's the first question. Where are you looking to measure if you're okay? This is such an important question. We're going to come back to this next week again. It's that big of a question. Where are you looking to measure if you're okay? Because all of us are looking somewhere. That's not a bad thing. All of us are looking somewhere. 
But the answer to this question is going to determine whether you are secure and content as an individual or whether you are insecure and discontent. Your standard, where you look to to measure if you're okay, it makes all the difference in the world. So who is it for you or what is it for you? Some of you look to your mom or dad, where they were at your stage of life or, you know, where they expected you to be or where they want you to be now. It may be you're looking at your kids going, okay, well, if they, I'm looking at them and deter, depending on how well they're doing, then it, you know, reflects on how well I'm doing and that's how I know if I'm doing okay. For some of you, it may be a sibling or an in-law that you're looking to and you've never really even voiced it. There's just this internal thing in you that you measure yourself by them. That, that's your standard. For some of you, it may be a boss. Or it could be a coach. It could be teacher. I don't know. For some of you, it may be a what, not a who. It's the size of your paycheck. It's the, where you are in the org chart. It's the size of the company that you get to work for. You know, it's, it's your net worth. I don't know what this looks like. We all have a standard, though. It's that thing that when I say rate your life on a scale 1 to 10, it's the thing that you immediately compare your life to. Okay, that's, that's where you look to measure if you're okay. You need to know what that is because it makes all the difference in the world. We'll come back to that next week. Here's another question. Are you exhausted from trying to keep up with and you just fill in the blank with whatever your thing is? It could be that standard. Or it could be your definition of success you have created for yourself. Or it could be somebody. It could be a whole group of somebodies. It could be somebody who's not even here anymore, but you're st still trying to earn their approval. You're trying to catch somebody, and it is wearing you out. You know how you know when you have the wrong definition of success? It wears you out trying to achieve it. And you think you get there, and then you realize, nope, I'm not there. It's, it's moved. The wrong definition of success is always a moving target. The right definition of success is something you can experience every single day. So if you've got the wrong thing in the blank, it's just going to wear you out all the time. You're never going to feel like you're quite enough, that you've done enough, that you've become enough. Here's a related question. Are you financially stressed from trying to keep up with? Now, here's why I brought this one up. Because whenever people come to me and they begin to talk about financial pressure and stress that they feel, maybe it's the debt they've accumulated, maybe it's just the fact they have no margin, whatever it may be, whenever they start talking about that, their assumption is the solution is just a simple set of tools. That's what they think. That's why they're coming. They're just looking for the tools. Hey, can you give me the tools that relieve this financial stress? And what I always know is tools aren't the solution. Matter of fact, if tools were the solution, you wouldn't have any financial stress because you're all smart people. You know what the tools are. If you don't, you know where to go learn the tools and find them if you want them. And it's not rocket science to use them. So you know how to give, save, and then live on the rest. You know how to create a budget and a spending plan. You, you know how to do all that. I mean, you could figure it out if you don't. There are people who will help you figure it out if you need help. That's not ever the problem. I'm telling you, most of the financial stress that you feel is driven by something that you don't even know is there and I don't even know is there. And it's discontentment. It's insecurity. It's dissatisfaction. And if you were ever able to connect the dots and get to the root of why you bought that, why you built that, why you leased that, why you borrowed for that, if you could ever get to the root and acknowledge to yourself, this is the real reason. I'm just trying to measure up. I'm trying to keep up. 
I'm trying to live up to some standard. It would change everything for you. Then all the tools would work for you. They don't work for you right now because you're sabotaging yourself with this discontentment rattling around inside of you that you don't even realize is there. You don't recognize it. You won't acknowledge it and deal with it. So the root problem just keeps creating havoc. Here, here's another question. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Now, we all know what this feels like. We've all done this. I was perfectly content with my one-bedroom apartment until I was invited over and saw his two-bedroom apartment. Now, oh my gosh, I need that much space, not this much. It's so much nicer. You know, you're perfectly content with your kitchen. It was wonderful. You enjoy it. You have a fun time in there. It's great. Perfectly content until she invited you over and you saw her renovated kitchen with that fancy little spout over the stove that you can put water in a pot. I don't even know what you call those things. But all of a sudden, you're like, I got to have that in my kitchen. Isn't it funny how that works? It's like perfectly content to, oh, no, my kitchen sucks in a heartbeat. That's the way it works for us, doesn't it? Same thing's true with us guys with trucks and boats and guns and golf clubs and you name it. You know, whatever the thing is for you. So often we don't enjoy what we have simply because we've seen what somebody else has and it's made us discontent with what we have now. Where's that happening for you? Because it's probably happening somewhere. You need to at least acknowledge that and own it. I'm not saying you shouldn't go upgrade or buy or do whatever. You figure that out. I'm just saying you ought to at least be honest with you, enough with yourself to go, the whole reason I'm doing this is because I was happy with that until I saw theirs. So now I want theirs instead of mine. It's not good enough anymore. At least just say that before you go get it. Here's a related one. Are you allowing what you're missing to keep you from enjoying what you have? Now here's what I mean by this. For all of us, there are seasons of our life where there's something we desperately want we don't have. And we end up not enjoying everything we have in that season because we're longing for the next season to show up. The easiest way to illustrate this is, for some of you who are single and you desperately want to get married, this is it. You're so discontent and so focused on getting married and getting to that season of life, you're not actually enjoying this single season of your life, which is an extraordinary season of life, and you should enjoy it, and there's so much you can do and accomplish in that season, but you're missing it because you think I'm not going to be content until I get there. For some of you, it's having kids, and you're missing enjoying and experiencing this season of life as a married couple without kids because you just want to have kids. For some of you, it's getting the kids out of the house, isn't it? It's the exact opposite. You've come full circle now, you know? I don't know what this looks like for you. It could be a job. It could be, you know, whatever. But there's something you got in your mind, and you're just so fixated on it, you're not enjoying the season you're in right now because of something you feel like is missing from the picture. Here's another question. It's just for... A group of us, parents. Do you enjoy your children or are you driving them to keep up with other kids? In other words, are you parenting, by, and it's driven by the motive of, I'm looking for what's best for my kid. Or are you parenting, and it's secretly driven by the motive of, I'm looking for how to look best with my kids. Now, that's hard to admit. But it's why you're pushing your kids, some of you, into things they don't really care about or pushing them to do things they don't necessarily want to do. And you say, because it's so easy to say, well, I'm just doing this in the best interest of my kid. But really, it's not about the kid. It's about how you look as a parent and the kind of kid you want to have so he looks better on you. It's insecurity and discontentment that's driving that. You have to figure out if that's true for you. But that's a motive thing that's really hard to see, isn't it? 
Here's one more for those of us who are in a relationship. Has comparing your spouse or significant other made them feel like you're dissatisfied with them? Now you say, again, this is hard to see, because you say, no, 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 I just point those things out because I'm trying to help you grow. That, that never goes well, does it? That conversation always ends poorly. Because in reality, they know you're not actually trying to help them grow. You're just trying to make them more like who you want them to be. And who you want them to be is compared to somebody else. You're looking at them and going, if you were just a little more like that, if you were just a little more like that or that or that, oh, man, I'd be so much happier. So now I'm going to push you to be more like them. It's comparison. Now, just real quick, this is free, and then we'll wrap up. The whole thing's free, isn't it? Some of you are like, huh, do I have to pay for this when I leave? No, but maybe we should try that. There'd be six of you here next week. Anyway, here, here's the thing. You can never genuinely love someone who you put in the crosshairs of comparison. You can't. What is unconditional love? Unconditional love is looking at someone and saying, I love you no matter what. You can't do anything to make me love you more. You can't do anything to make me love you less. You cannot demonstrate that kind of love towards someone, anyone, a significant other, a child, a friend, a parent, anyone. You can't demonstrate unconditional love to them if you're trying to change them, if you have them in the crosshairs of comparison. If you would take them out of the crosshairs, you would be amazed at how much better your relationship got. So you've got to figure out Where's discontentment showing up? And I hope you'll spend enough time this week reflecting on it and trying to dig it out, as hard as it is to admit. Because once you see it, you'll see the damage it's doing. Once you see it, you'll want to get rid of it. Once you see it, you'll go, no, 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 that's way too ugly. I don't want that to be true of me. And then you'll be ready to learn the secret of commitment. And we'll pick up right there next week. Let me pray for us. Father, it's so hard to see. It's hard to see because we don't want to see it. It's hard to see because it's just normal in our culture. It's hard to see it because it's just the way everybody is. We all just look to the left or right. We all compare. We're all looking to something to measure if we're okay. But we so often are looking to the wrong thing, we don't even realize it. It's creating so much insecurity and dissatisfaction and discontentment in us. But we think it's normal. We think we just need a little bit more. We think we just need to get a little bit more progress. That's why there's always something more we're looking for. So would you help us this week to see it? To see it in areas where maybe we've got a clue it's there? To see it in areas where we go, oh man, I had no idea it was there. But that's it. That's why. Help us to have enough courage to be honest with ourselves about it. And then Help us over these next few weeks to learn the secret of contentment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.